We missed one last bullet point, and I cut it short at that time to make sure that we had uh, ample time uh, this week, and we'll cover that. But we'll look at the one verse that I didn't cover uh, in chapter 3, and then we'll pick up with verse 21. And the, the other bullet point, if you were with us last week, that I left off with was John's Messiah, which I'll just kind of change that uh, today to the ministry of Christ, uh, one and the same. And we'll start with uh, reading verse 16, which is what we did not cover, and then I'll pick it up with verses 21 through 38 with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So starting with verse 16, uh, Luke chapter 3, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Skip down to verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in which I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Matthai, the son of Samai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Jonas, the son of Ressa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Nerai, the son of Melchi, I wish I spoke Hebrew sometimes, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmodin, the son of Er, the son of uh, Jose, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Elikam, the son of Malaya, the son of Menon, the son of Mata, whatever, the son of Nathan, <laughs> the son of David, the son, you know, I'm good when it's just a couple, but when you start stringing this many together, it gets tough. I think like an Englishman, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, that's an easy one, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Man, I, used to, I recognize these names, right? The son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I know that's kind of tough to go through all that. It's even more tough when you have to read it in public and you're not so great with some of those names, but it's good to hear the whole genealogy. You know, every single verse written in the Bible is written for a purpose. Even the parts that at face value say, I'm not sure I got a lot out of that. You will, hopefully, in just a few minutes. There's, there's quite a bit there. Turn with me to one other place, John chapter 1. Go, to, go right in your Bibles. We want to look at a parallel passage to the verses preceding the genealogy. Now, the genealogy is very important. Not, it's not an unimportant thing. It's recorded twice, so we know it's important. Matthew records the genealogy from Joseph, and Luke records the genealogy from Mary. So we know it's very important to the Lord, and we'll look at why it's important. But look at uh, John chapter 1, a parallel passage to verses 21 and 22, as well as verse 16, because John actually puts them in, uh, in order together, and that is the unworthiness of John to actually touch the sandal strap of Jesus and then the proclamation of who Jesus is. And of course, that's also revealed in the genealogy. Look at John chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 27. John chapter 1, verse 27. It is he coming after me 
who is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is whom this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, or I did not know for certain that my own relative was the Son of God. That's what he's saying. I knew he was special. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now the ministry of your Holy Spirit to speak to your people. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, they wouldn't leave here today without coming to you and receiving the grace and the indwelling of the Spirit that comes with the salvation purchased by your blood. Bless this time of Bible study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes here today, uh, I've titled our time in God's Word, The Son of God. Uh, You can't improve on some things. We see this in John's recording there in chapter 1. John says, I testify that he is the Son of God. And if you notice at the end of the genealogy, verse 38 in Luke chapter 3 here, look at the last four words of the 38th chapter, the Son of God. Now that does speak of Adam, but it doesn't only speak of Adam. And we'll look at some things here this morning that will uh, make this clear. If you're taking notes, Three sections to look at this morning. His ministry, which replaces last week's His Messiah, which again, one and the same for John. His ministry, being Christ. His anointing, being Christ's anointing. And His fulfillment, those things which Christ fulfills, not only in the genealogy, but obviously His coming and ultimately what He will do uh, when He comes and fulfills all the things that are written by the law and the prophets. If you're taking notes again, under his ministry, we want to look, starting at verse 16, where John says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now John and Jesus were related. Everyone remembers this, right? John and Jesus, Jesus born to Elizabeth and Zacharias, I mean, John born to, Jesus, John born to Elizabeth and Zacharias, Jesus born to Mary with no earthly father, but Joseph as, or, or, or no earthly biological father, but Joseph as his earthly father, but God being his father, And the two of them, Jesus and John, relatives of one another, uh, the first time we see them in proximity, it's Jesus is inside of Mary, remember? John is inside of Elizabeth, and the babe leaps within her just because Jesus has entered the vicinity that the Holy Spirit tells John, get excited and start worshiping inside of your mother, because the Messiah is over here. Now, John, growing up, we don't know. We don't know exactly what type of ongoing communication or interaction John and Jesus had growing up. Remember, we only know about Jesus' life up to the age of what? Twelve. And even that, we don't know a lot of details. Again, we know that he went down to Egypt. We know he came back uh, after the death of Herod, back to Nazareth. We know that Jesus goes up to Passover at the age of 12, amazes the temple priest and has this dialogue and interaction of study with them. Uh, But we don't know what's going on with John the Baptist during this time. We know at some point John the Baptist leaves his own household and goes out into the wilderness 
until it's his time to be the forerunner for Christ. And when that time comes, he begins to cry out with a loud voice, and people come from miles around to hear John the Baptist preach a, pre a message of repentance. Many come to Christ or, or come to uh, a place of repentance. They don't know exactly who Jesus Christ is yet. John's telling them, you will soon meet him. And so John has known that his relative is special. I was, when I was uh, a few weeks ago in Bible study with a couple of the men here, we were talking about this. And you can imagine if John and Jesus did have interaction over the years, everyone knew that John had a special calling. Remember, his birth was quite miraculous as well. Remember, his father was deaf, or, or father became dumb, could not speak, and then all of a sudden after his birth says his name shall be Yochanan or John. And John had a miraculous birth, and John had a special calling that it was apparent to virtually everybody that John had a special calling. But even John hanging out, can you imagine John hanging out with Jesus, and at times John saying, does this guy ever do anything wrong? I mean anything. Every word is perfect. I tell him some great thing I read in the book of Isaiah, and he expounds and teaches me five things I never saw. And so John was always, if they had any interaction, probably amazed, but it wasn't until the Lord told John, whoever you see the Holy Spirit descend like a dove upon, you'll know. You'll know at that time, that is my son. That is the Lamb of God. Would that not be amazing to you to have a close relative? Put yourself in John's shoes. You know he's special. You know he has an anointing. John knew he was anointed for ministry, but... Jesus was not actually doing any specific ministry all during that time. He was just being his father, father's helper carpenter. Jesus has not looked on the outside to a lot of people to be preparing for ministry. This is why Jesus had favor with man. Why? Because Jesus, all during that time, was not going around preaching repentance, which really ruffles feathers, by the way. When you preach repentance... People don't really like your teaching anymore. If you can make them laugh, if you can make them feel good, if you can tell them helpful tips, if all that stuff, and if Jesus, again, all during his life growing up, he was a helpful guy. Hey, I, I know Carpenter, I'll help you build that. But all of a sudden, later, when Jesus' ministry would come forth, he wouldn't be quite as liked by everybody. And John, even though many came to faith, many repented. Remember that the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't really like John's ministry either. That's why he called them what? Brood of vipers. They were there to cut off John's ministry. So even though John was seeing the power of the Holy Spirit in his ministry, many people being brought to a place of repentance, baptized in the Jordan River, people coming from all around. When John sees Jesus, and the Holy Spirit says, that's the Lamb of God, and verifies it with the Holy Spirit, John knows, I must decrease, but he must what? Increase. Listen to what F.B. Meyer writes. F.B. Meyer lived in the 1800s, a contemporary of people like Charles Spurgeon and uh, D.L. Moody. F.B. Meyer writes this. He said, we are told that the time of John's appearance was the sabbatic year when the field work was suspended and the people had comparative leisure in his passion for God, reality, and truth. John asked for nothing of men, but men were willing to give him anything. The impression he made on his age was due to his selfless devotion to the coming kingdom and to its king. The great cities emptied themselves into the Jordan Valley. The youth of the Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, by the way, left their fishing boats to sit at his feet. The spirit and power of Elijah rested on him. All classes felt that he could speak to their needs and submitted to his direction. But how abased his bearing before Jesus. The voice that had swept the crowds like a whirlwind sank to whispers. 
O Lord, our Lord, took him into fellowship. It becometh us. The porter, that being John, opened the door and recognized that it was the true shepherd who had now passed in. John had this great ministry. Use of the Lord. Jesus said no man ever born a woman was greater than John the Baptist. What's that say? There's been a lot of great pastors, a lot of great evangelists, a lot of great missionaries, a lot of great prophets, but Jesus said none greater than John. And John, when he sees Jesus, says, I'm not even worthy to touch the sandal strap with dust and dirt and sweat. Do you feel that way about Jesus? All of us combined have never reached John's ministry. Our combined lives have not reached his ministry. Amen? How many times have you preached down by the the James River and people poured out from everywhere to hear you preach? How many times have you preached by the James River and people said, I fall on my face and repent of my wickedness. Please baptize me today. John saw this not just a few times, a lot of times. This is why the scribes and Pharisees were pulling out their collective hair. Who is he? Stop him. Go find out. Investigate. What's his weaknesses? Eventually, Satan himself had John head cut off. By the way, Satan doesn't like the message of repentance, does he? Too many people were coming to Christ. Now, in God's four knowledge and providence, it was already prepared beforehand that John would not live much longer, about the same time as Jesus, they would both die uh, in a relatively short span of one another. John dying slightly before Christ, but also born slightly before Christ. And yet John, with all that he had been blessed with, when he sees Christ, well, I want to have this perspective of Jesus. He meant it. These are not just words that he would say. John really felt unworthy to even get down on his face and just tip the tiniest piece of leather on Jesus' sandal. Now, this is a far cry from today's uh, American church where ha- you people have say things like, Jesus is my homeboy, or Jesus is my good buddy, or all these things. Now, where did John go wrong that he didn't come up with that ide- ideology and theology? It never dawned on John to do anything but bow down like he was a king because he recognized that the ministry of Jesus... You know, when the sun rises, all lesser lights go out. True? Your street light doesn't mean a whole lot once the sun goes up, right? You don't need it anymore. All lesser lights go out when Jesus rises and dawns on the earth. And John and the rest of us We aren't worthy to touch his sandal strap either, are we? See, Jesus' ministry would be far greater than John's. It's one thing to announce the sacrifice. It's altogether different to be the sacrifice. Amen? John was announcing, behold the Lamb of God, but Jesus is the Lamb of God. The ministry of Christ would ultimately not only bring salvation from sin and death, but it would bring the indwelling power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what John says. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, I can bring you to the Jordan. I can make sure that you have repented based on your own words. I can't see your heart. God can, but you say you repented. I can baptize you as a testimony that you're letting God wash you from sin. But the one who's coming, when he washes you, he will burn away impurities deep within you and fill you with his presence. See, the one who's coming, this ministry, he cuts even to the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He brings the indwelling presence of God. He brings it down from heaven to us. John says, all I can do is tell you about it. The one I'm telling you about, he actually does it. He does the work. He brings the conviction. He brings the cleansing. He brings the Holy Spirit. He baptizes and burns away all the things in our lives that would keep us from walking with the Lord. John, the son of Zacharias. By the way, 
Um, the longer I'm saved, the less I like the term John the Baptist. As my good messianic pastor friend Sam says, John was not a Baptist. Uh, nothing against Baptist. Uh, I have Baptist pastor friends. They're good folks. But John wasn't a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or any of those other things. Uh, the proper what John the Baptizer is a good way of saying it. But I like to just say John the son of Zacharias. Remember, he instead of taking the name of Zacharias, John, God gave him specifically the name Yochanan or John. John, the son of Zacharias, because Jesus is the son of God, but John is the son of Zacharias. He did do a lot of baptizing, but the son of Zacharias, in his ministry, John could bring people to a point of decision. I can, through the faithfulness of the word, not, not really me, but just if I'm willing to just yield and say, Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the word of God, you can be brought to a place of decision through my preaching or any other faithful to the word pastor, evangelist, missionary around the world. You can be brought to a place of decision because someone proclaims the truth. But Jesus not only brings you to the... Jesus does more than that. Jesus would also preach the same message as John. He would preach a message of repentance. But Jesus can not only bring you to a point of decision... Jesus actually brings you to a place of redemption and restoration. Amen? John cannot do that. John can tell you where to go, but Jesus is the source of complete and radical change and transformation. John can baptize with water as a sign, but Jesus can baptize with the fire of the Holy Spirit, and he can provide a peace and power that can never be quenched. And never will be quenched if we're genuinely saved. Now, we know that we didn't read verse 17, but I do want to remind. Uh, John tells us that Jesus will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat into his barn. And the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable, uh, unquenchable fire. John does remind us that Jesus will bring a ministry of restoration and salvation, but to reject Jesus, to reject Jesus is to have no hope after death. And only the promise of an eternal separation from God and torment in a living, burning hell. Because he says, the chaff, or those that are separated from the wheat, will be burned in unquenchable fire. In other words, a fire that will never go out. Jesus is not to be rejected. Everyone must take the same response as John and bow down. As the scriptures say, it is written, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Everyone will someday believe in the ministry of Jesus. You'll either believe now or you'll believe after death. But everyone, 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 communists, atheists, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, New Agers, rock stars, CEOs, important people, not important people, every single person will someday say, you are the Son of God. And I don't know why I didn't say yes to your great salvation. Everyone will hear that. What a wise thing to accept the salvation and ministry of Jesus Christ today. Aren't you glad you have? I'd I only wish I would have done it sooner. I never wish, oh, I wish I would have waited a little bit longer. I could have had a little more fun. I was having such a good time there in Miami when I got saved. There's so much to do, and there is, but it's like a puff of smoke. It's here for a little while and vanishes away. Matter of fact, if you go back to the places you used to hang out when you're unsaved, Especially, you know, my wife and I, we got saved in South Florida. We went to college in Miami. And, um, and it's interesting, in the, in the hip world, and I used to bartend, and I did all that stuff through college, and, uh, you know, we tried to be really cool and super hip and all the clubs. You know, when you go back, they're all different now. It's such a short-lived thing. And people will sacrifice eternity for the very passing pleasures of sin. This is what John preached but Jesus preached, but Jesus said, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden and thirsty, 
Come unto me, and I'll place my ministry or my yoke upon you. And it's easy and it's light compared to the darkness that you're being pulled further into. The ministry of Jesus is not to be rejected, but it will bring certain judgment. Why is this? Why is it, why is it that rejecting Jesus will bring judgment? It's a fair question. People ask, you ever had someone ask you that? Why, if I say no to Jesus, do I have to spend all eternity in hell? Well, it's pretty simple. I'm giving an analogy. If you're drowning in the ocean, and you're one of those places where you're going under, you'll either die of hypothermia, or you'll just die of just exhaustion. You'll, you'll slip into. But the Coast Guard comes, and you've got a good solid two to three minutes of life, and they throw the life preserver literally on you, and you decide, send it back up. Whose fault is it? Who's really? Think about it. The Coast Guard drops it right on you, says, please, just grab on. Send it up, you jerks. How dare you throw me that life preserver? And then what if someone else in the, in the helicopter says, I think they're just having a good time swimming. They're in, they look like they're enjoying themselves. Look how they're flailing around. John comes along, and he tries to throw out a life preserver. He parts and makes way for Jesus, and Jesus says, now I'll throw the life preserver. If they didn't grab on when you threw it, John, I'll throw it. Not only will I throw it, I am the life preserver. What if they say no? Then they'll meet me on Judgment Day. And they will not. I promise you, when everyone who's rejected Jesus, no one, and I mean no one, no one who stands for Jesus will ever, ever say, you did me wrong. You believe that? No. You, here on this earth, you'll have people get violently angry about it. How dare God send someone to hell? How dare he put them in unquenchable fire? But not when they stand before the Lord, because they will know they were the ones that said, send the life preserver up. I'd rather enjoy three more minutes and then go down. Which is essentially what your life is, but a vapor. I'd rather enjoy three more minutes. I don't know why. I used to think the same way. It took me many times of hearing the gospel before I finally said, yes, Lord. He kept throwing it back down to me. And I would say, send it up. He'd throw it back down to me. Very, very patient the Lord is. Amen? And uh, praise the Lord. His ministry is one of grace and mercy. Let's look at his anointing. Verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized while he prayed, the heaven was opened. Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. Now, the Holy Spirit can't be seen. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. But God can do whatever he wants to do. And the Holy Spirit makes himself visible, but not in a way that would kill a man. Because if you see God in his glory, you don't live. So he makes himself visible in the form of a dove. Which, by the way, a dove means what? Peace. God comes down. He offers us terms of what? Peace. We'll talk about this again next week. He wants us to accept his terms of peace. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And not only does he want to give us terms of peace, he wants to give us his very own power. The very power that will rest upon Jesus will rest upon us. But his anointing, we see, was visible in the form of a dove that would come down. But not only visible, but it was audible because the very voice of God speaks and says, you are my beloved son in which I am well pleased. Not will be pleased, not used to be pleased, perpetually. Am. Notice that it even says, I am is in there, by the way, in whom I am pleased. The I am, the Father, the Son, the Spirit are all pleased with the Son. Amen? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all pleased with the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all pleased with the Father. All three, perfection. In our life, there's nothing perfection except for what we see in the Lord. Amen? But the anointing of Jesus 
is unlike any other anointing. Paul and the apostles, they would lay hands on men and they were anointed for ministry. But the anointing of Jesus is laid on by God himself. His anointing comes from God the Father, verified by the Holy Spirit, the visible witness of the Spirit, and testified by the Word of God in the presence of witnesses. John was there. We have John's testimony. I just read it for you in John chapter 1. John, a person testified, this is the Son of God. But even if John didn't testify, it really wouldn't matter because who already testified? God the Father. 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 9. Written by the same John the Apostle as John chapter 1. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. He goes on in verse 9, he says, If we receive the wisdom of men such as John the Apostle, or John the Baptist, or John the son of Zacharias, the witness of God is greater. And this is the witness of which God, he has testified of his son. John says, even though there were, man, there were witnesses of men there, the witness of God is greater. The witness of the Spirit is there. The witness of the Word in heaven. All these three bear witness as one. The witness of the Father, the witness of the Word, and the witness of the Spirit. We actually see all three are here. The witness of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Father, and the very voice of the Father is also the what? Word. The Word is now recorded in the Scriptures, so the very words of God are the Word of God. I know that seems redundant, but it's understand- you, you have to see that all three that John mentions in 1 John are verified in the anointing of Jesus, the Spirit, the Father. How do we know Father? Because he says, you are my beloved what? Son. We have no doubt that it's a father speaking to a son because you, he says, you are my beloved son. So the Father, the Word, and the Spirit testifying greater than the witness of men, and yet God does give us the witness of men, the witness of the apostles, the witness of the gospels, the witness of John, the son of Zacharias. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was speaking. Uh, this is when he uh, meets Cornelius in the household of Cornelius. Peter says in uh, Acts chapter 10, verses 37 through 38, 37, yeah, 37, 38, that word you know, which was proclaimed in all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached. Peter knew of John's ministry. How God anointed Jesus. Did you hear that? Peter tells us emphatically when he's talking to Cornelius that God anointed Jesus. All other men, in essence, God's anointed anyone for preaching, but their anointing, even though it comes from God, has the intermediary of men, but God anointed Jesus because no one else has ever had the Holy Spirit come down out of heaven and rest upon them. No one. Despite some of the crazy things you'll see by some of the televangelists that claim different weird things, his was verified. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So Peter tells Cornelius the ministry of Jesus was God's own son anointed by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, more on the anointing of Jesus. This was foretold long before Jesus was born of Mary, foretold in the The Tanakh, or the Old Testament, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall what? Rest upon him, just like the Holy Spirit comes down. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's actually the sevenfold Spirit of God. The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit would rest upon Jesus. How he would fulfill that great title, Wonderful Counselor. He would fulfill that. The Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might. That mighty God would be resting upon Jesus. His ministry anointed by God the Father. 
And then we see in this genealogy here, his fulfillment. Of course, we see the fulfillment in the actual uh, anointing itself. We see the uh, fulfillment in him coming forth. As we've seen previously, Jesus was already born according to uh, prophecy. Remember, the scriptures tell us in Isaiah that the virgin will bring forth a child. And we know that in Isaiah 9, 6, we're all familiar with this around the Christmas season, for unto us a child is born. That has already taken place in our study. In chapters 1 and 2, we see Jesus up to the age of what? 12. Up to the age of 12. The child. But the next part of Isaiah 9, 6, it says a son is given. The child must be born. That has already taken place. But now the son must be given. Now, in essence, this was done in eternity past. It was already done, but it's a kind of officially done with Jesus, God presenting him to the world through ministry and ultimately to the cross and the resurrection. The son would then give himself, not only would the father give the son, but the son would give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not do this as a child. When did he do it? He did it as a man. The child is born, but the son is given. This is my beloved son. This is my son. To you, the world, and whom I am well pleased, hear him. Don't reject him. His fulfillment. If you look at the genealogy here, if you go all the way to the end, we won't look at all of them. We go all the way to the end, we see in verse 38, the son of Adam and the son of God. Now, in between all that, Jesus fulfills a number of very important, very important prophecies and fulfillments. Let's look at first Abraham. Abraham. Jesus would be the son of Abraham. In Abraham, God says, in your seed, all the world will be blessed. All the world will be blessed. How? Because from the seed of Abraham would become the perfect son, the only begotten son, the one that would redeem and bring peace, forgiveness, and grace. Isaac, of course, was a picture. We see Isaac here, too. He's the son of Isaac. Isaac was a picture of Jesus. What did Abraham the father do with his son? He laid down his son Isaac on the altar. And Isaac was willing to give up his life selflessly to lay down because it was the will of his father. So we know that Jesus fulfills the prophecies or the foreshadowings that we see even in Isaac. He's the son of Jacob. Jacob's name becomes what? Israel. He's the son of Israel. The son of Israel. He must come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He must be of the household of Israel. Can't be a Gentile. Though he loves Gentiles and will save many Gentiles, of which I am one, and many of you are as well, he must come from the household of Israel. He must be a son of Israel, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob. He must be from the tribe of Judah. We see back in th- verse 33, chap- uh, verse 33 here, the son of Judah. He has to be from the household of Judah, but not just from the household of Judah. He must be the branch of Jesse. We read that in Isaiah 11. Look at verse 32, the son of Jesse. He must be from the household lineage of David. King David, the throne of David, the son of David, verse 31. All of these things, Jesus alone must fulfill. Now, draw your attention back to verse 23. It says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, in your Bibles, most of you probably have a parenthesis, says, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. You guys have that in your Bible? As was supposed, the son of Joseph means exactly what you probably think it means. If you met Jesus, and you met Joseph hanging out together, and Jesus said, this is my father Joseph, you would suppose that he was biologically his father, but 
He's not. As was supposed, he is his father figure in, in the human realm, but not his father. His father speaks in verse 22. The re, his real father speaks in verse 22. His supposed father is mentioned in verse 23. This is how we also know that this lineage comes through Mary's side, and then we see Joseph's side in Matthew chapter 1. So he's not really the son of Joseph, but he submits to Joseph as his earthly father. But bloodline through Mary, Mary is directly related because he is born of the flesh of Mary. He, Mary is the direct descendant, Joseph being her covering, the direct descendant of all the men that you see all the way going back to Adam. Why is it so important that, that the Holy Spirit traces Jesus all the way back to Adam? All the way back to Adam. This lineage is very important. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this, For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam we all die. And Christ, we're made alive. He goes on in the 45th verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. And, so, and he says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, or the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Did you catch that? The first Adam, Paul writes, became a living being. The first Adam went from not existing to becoming a living being. There was a time when Adam did not exist. And then God says, let's, let us make man an hour, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, image. He becomes a life-giving being. But the last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. Why does he say the last Adam? Look back at verse 38 again. Of Adam, the son of Adam. And what's Adam called? The son of God. There's only two men that have ever walked the earth that didn't have an earthly biological father. Adam was the first, and the second Adam is Christ Jesus. Adam didn't have an earthly father. He didn't. God just created him. He had no earthly father. Jesus had no earthly father. But there's a huge difference between Adam and Jesus, isn't there? <laughs> Adam has a beginning. Jesus is from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning or end. He is the Alpha and Omega. He, he's not like Adam in the sense that Adam has this starting point. The creation or the created Son of God is Adam. Adam is the created Son of God. And what happened to the created Son of God? Well, the created Son of God, he fell and he rebelled and he brought sin and death to all of his offspring that would be us. Every one of us are related to the first Adam. True? We're not all in this world related to the second Adam. Because that doesn't come through physical birth, does it? This is why Jesus said, ye must be what? Born again. This is John chapter 3, Super Bowl Sunday. You'll see the verse behind the goalpost, John 3.16. But in the same chapter... Jesus will say it, tell Nicodemus, ye must be born again. Why? Because we're all born under the first Adam, but we're not all born under the second Adam. The first Adam became a living being, but the second Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. The first Adam is the son of God by creation, but the second Adam is the son of God through submission. He already was the son of God, but comes and submits himself to human flesh. Jesus becomes a man, but he's always been the Son of God. He, he chooses to submit to human flesh. This still boggles my mind. I don't care how many times I think about it, that Jesus would allow himself to be like us. All of you look so great and beautiful and nice this morning, but there's times when you probably don't feel that great. You've had the flu. You feel miserable. 
You look in the mirror and you think, I look miserable. Other people are kind and don't tell you. No, I'm kidding. We see all of our frailties. Sometimes we don't smell good. God doesn't deal with any of that. And Jesus became that. Becomes human flesh. Takes on, he submits to become a man, though he already was God and the Son of God. Adam didn't do that. Adam just, how did I get here? I created you. Jesus willingly goes in by the Holy Spirit and is born of Mary and has to have his diapers changed and all that he submits himself to all of the just lowliness of being a human being compared to, because even the Bible says we are even lower than the angels. The angels can ascend and descend. We can't jump more than, if you're a really good athlete, some of the best in the NBA can jump like 44 inches. The angels laugh at that. Right? That's not real big to them. One angel smote the entire, you know, armies at times. One angel. And Jesus submitted himself lower than man, lower than the angels, to really come down and be the second Adam. 1 John 4, 9 says, In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. You and me are in a heap of trouble if there's only the first Adam. Amen? If the only Son of God is Adam, we've got a problem. But if there's a second Son that's greater than the first one, far greater. If there's a second ministry that's greater than John the Baptist, far greater. Do you see that Jesus is the multiplier above, well beyond the ministry of John, and the Son of God that far superior to Adam we're in a lot of trouble because Adam passed only death and hell onto us. Jesus comes and he passes on eternal life through his blood. Through Adam's blood, we inherit sin. Through the blood of Christ, we inherit life. Romans 5, verses 14 through 15. Romans 5. Paul wrote the most exhaustive stuff about the Adam-Jesus comparison in 1 Corinthians and again in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even those who uh, had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of him who was to come. In other words, one who came directly from God. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Paul's saying, the created Son of God comes, and he brings sin and death. But the sent, the given son, the begotten son of God, the eternal son of God, he brings grace and the gift of grace through his own flesh and blood, through his own sacrifice, and abounds this grace to many as all who would receive and call upon his name. Amen? Jesus throws the same life preserver to every single person. True? Every single person. Every single one. You know, if I, if I were to send all of you, let's assume you all have email. You may not. If I send you all an email and I tell you, make sure you read it. Please read it. There is a free gift in it. And you don't believe me? And then you talk to someone else and they open it up and say, yeah, it was a, it was a free dinner, Outback Steakhouse, $50. We we enjoyed it. Why did I get that? You did. Go check your email. I didn't think he was telling the truth. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was this. I thought it was that. I didn't believe it. Belief. Those that believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ receive. Those that say, I don't have the time. I've got better things to do. I'm not sure I believe that. You're no greater than Muhammad. You're no greater than Buddha. You're no greater than Confucius. Uh, your way is as good as my way. I can do what I want. And you're still under the second Adam in that condition. Amen? But if you say, no, God, I want your given son because I know that your created son can't get me to heaven because we're under the same fleshly confines of Adam and Eve. We are sinners that have rejected God. We must receive 
the second Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus as the physical son of Adam. Jesus had to fulfill all this too. Jesus couldn't just be the given son of God. God could not. And and who makes up these rules? God does. So we know that by his own scripture. God, in his economy, Jesus could not just appear on the earth and walk around and say, I am the son of God. He would be the son of God, but that would not cleanse us from sin. He had to come in Adam's form. He had to be a literal blood descendant of Adam, but be perfect. Make sense? Because he had to have blood running through his veins, just like Adam. He had to shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Jesus had to be a direct descendant of Adam, which he was, through Mary. So he was all man, but that's not all. He was also all God all man, and all God. He's the physical son of Adam. But as the father testifies in verse 22, you are my beloved son. He's the spiritual. He's the equal. He is the triune, member of the triune God, the son of God. He is actually 100% God and 100% man. He is both the son of Adam and the son of God. Amen? He's the son of Adam and he's the son of God. Jesus would say it this way, often. Now when you read your Bibles, this will make sense even more to you. Maybe it already does. But Jesus said this of himself regularly. He says in Mark chapter 2 verses 10 and again in 28, but he says it often. He uses this term of himself, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he goes on the 28th verse, therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Whenever Jesus says son of man, you can think son of Adam. Not only Adam. The son of man means that Jesus himself, it is a title. It's only ascribed to Jesus. You and I are sons and daughters of man. We are not the son of man. Whenever you read this now in the New Testament, you will notice whenever Jesus refers to himself As the Son of Man, he says, the Son of Man. Not a Son of Man, not Son of Man. You'll actually see in the Old Testament, Daniel was referred to God by Son of Man. Ezekiel, more than 80 times, is referred to as Son of Man, but not the Son of Man. In other words, God will speak to a prophet like this, Son of Man. But when Jesus speaks to himself, he says, now when the Son of Man... He is the, capital T, capital H, capital E, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am the perfect Son descended from Adam that can save you from your sins. When I stand up and speak, I can forgive sins. I have the power over death. I'm Lord over the Sabbath, the Son of Man, and the Son of God, I am one and the same. Also, what this tells us, in all the Scripture, whenever the Son of Man is mentioned as it is terminology for someone like Ezekiel or Daniel or anywhere else that's mentioned in the Bible where we're called sons of men, it shows our low, weak state. It's another reminder that we're not even as powerful as the angels, as I mentioned earlier. We're not. And unless we have a weapon, we're not more powerful than a lion or a tiger We have more mental capacity, which is why we've been given dominion. But if you're stuck and your gun jams, you find out you're actually a little less than even some as far as physical strength. We have a weak state. We're sons of men. We're weak in our sin nature. We're weak in physical nature. And Jesus would take on that weakness, but do it with perfection to be the son of man. Jesus the physical son of man, the son of God, he would say, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Who do men say I, the son of man, am? Who do they say I am? Because Jesus says, I am the son of man. I am the direct descendant of Adam. But like Adam, my father is heaven. But unlike Adam, I'm perfect and holy and righteous. And I forgive sin. Adam fell into sin I have to rescue the first. You know, Jesus has to rescue the first Adam. Isn't that amazing? 
Not only you and I, but all the way back, he has to reach back and rescue the very first Adam. We see just kind of coming to a close. You know, Jesus, in this title, it shows both his humiliation to become like a man, that he calls himself the Son of Man. You know, isn't that humble that Jesus would even call himself the Son of Man? It's his humiliation, but also his exaltation because of his perfection. Even Stephen, when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up, and of all the things Stephen could say about Jesus, the Holy Spirit tells him to say this, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man. Not Even there, Stephen is not compelled by the Spirit to say Son of God, the Son of Man. In other words, Stephen was testifying to the wicked men that are stoning him, that are full of their flesh, full of sin, that the perfect man is able to rescue you from what you're currently, the evil you're doing. He even says, lay not this sin to their charge, which was almost exactly what Jesus says on the cross. He sees the Son of Man, thinks like the Son of Man, and then begins to speak like the Son of Man. That's the transformation God wants to do in us. Amen? Let's close our Bibles and... Son of man, the Son of God. John said in 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Satan has tried so many times to thwart the coming of Christ, but you see in the genealogy, Satan failed, didn't he? Jesus came forth. He accomplished it all. He fulfilled all the fulfillments. And then it will be recorded in Acts 13, 33. God has fulfilled this for us. That he's raised up Jesus, as is written the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The ministry was fulfilled. The anointing was fulfilled. The fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. We've only yet begun. We've got a lot more left in Luke. We've still got to get to the cross. But Jesus is, he, he's as good as, When Jesus says, I'm going to go and finish the work, it's a done deal, amen? It's a done deal. We don't have to worry. He's going to accomplish it. The Son of God will not fail. The first son failed miserably, didn't he? And we all would have failed just as bad as Adam, truth be told, right? I would have failed worse than Adam. I'm pretty sure of it. I would have ate 10 fruits or whatever it was or something really dumber than he did, you know? I know dumber is not a word, but anyway. But we would have failed too. But Jesus never fails. The second son. Isn't that great? That genealogy is not there just so it's just a bunch of names that I have a hard time pronouncing. It's there that we would see that the Son of God is the last word on everything. The last, it's the last phrase, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the Son of God. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son, perfect as a man, glorious and exalted as Father. Lord, we just praise your name. We thank you for so great a salvation. Lord, I pray again if there's anyone here that does not know you, has never given their life to you, Lord, that they would not leave here today without ask you to be their Lord and Savior. Matter of fact, Lord, if there is anyone here and you want to give your life to the Lord, just stand right now. We'll pray with you. The worship team plays for just a second here. Just stand to your feet. If you're visiting, say, I, if I die today, I don't know if I would go to heaven. I, I recognize now that Jesus has sent me a life preserver in his own blood and his own grace and in his own sacrifice, but I To date, I've not said, yes, Lord, and you want to give your heart and life to Christ, please do so. This Sunday night, i got to tell you, we were at the correctional facility. It was right in the unit Tawan was in, and him and Aaron went in there, and they played the Billy Graham message of the cross again to that unit, which we hadn't hit yet. And I kid you not, we've had a guy that's for months said he's a worshiper of Satan give his life to Christ. This is what Jesus came... Everyone's a worshiper of Satan, whether they know it or not, before Christ. They might not do weird stuff, 
but they're a worshiper of the pride and the fallen nature of man. Everyone. Some just are at least honest enough to flat out say it. I worship the God of this age. And if you still are there and you're still under the sin of the first Adam, but you want to receive the mercy and the grace of the second, just stand right where you're at. No one will laugh at you. We'll only rejoice with you. Say, I want to give my heart and life to Christ. Anyone at all? If you're all here and you know the Lord, praise the Lord. But if you don't, don't put it off a day. You know, you don't know. I just read this week, uh, I was on Weather Channel, of all things. Sad story. Some of you might have saw it. A couple just got married. Driving snowstorm happened in Indiana this week. They have only been married eight hours. The husband sees a lady's car down in a ditch, says, we need to pull over and help. He's a, he's a veteran, too. Gets out of his car to help her, and they're both struck and killed. So the bride is now a widow after eight hours. True, this happened this week. You can go look it up. I saw it on Weather Channel, of all things. I was checking the weather for the next week. I didn't think I'd see that story. But it just shows us that life is fragile, isn't it? And even, and I even like you, I would say, Lord, he was doing something good. Look at all the people that are out there committing crimes, and they get away with it all. Although God will rectify all that. But again, don't be fooled into thinking, well, I have plenty of time to to grab the life preserver. You never know. That's not the scariest, it's just a fact. No man knows tomorrow. Amen?